Welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church. My name is Pastor Will. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as special devotionals and interviews. We hope these messages inspire hope and bring support as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions, or if you want further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking our website at asburymaitland.org. Well, Amanda and I are the parents of a little girl who is four years old like her brother, and she likes to call herself Princess, as many little girls like to do. And so, as you can imagine, we watch a lot of princess movies in our house. In fact, just yesterday, we were watching some princess movies in the Jones household. And this got me thinking about a princess movie that came out uh, more than 20 years ago called The Princess Diaries. Has, he, has anybody here ever seen The Princess Diaries before? Okay, Barbara, you're laughing, so I'm guessing you've seen it. <laughs> well, The Princess Diaries stars Anne Hathaway, who, of course, is a very gifted actress, uh, tremendously gifted, and she plays the role of Mia Thermopolis. We've got a picture of Mia up here on the screen. Uh, Mia is a teenage girl, and unbeknownst to her, she is a real-life princess. She is an actual princess. She has no idea. So she lives her life in America as an everyday, ordinary person until her grandmother tells her uh, that she is a princess. Only, she doesn't simply live her life as an everyday, ordinary person. In truth, she is an outcast at her school. Um, she is not cool. She's unpopular. She's virtually invisible to the people around her. And so at one point in the very beginning of the movie, uh, Mia is walking to class uh, at her school with her friend Lily, and they see their teacher, Miss Gupta. And so Lily, her friend, says to Miss Gupta, good morning, Miss Gupta. And Miss Gupta says, good morning, Lily. And then she looks at Mia and she says, and Lily's friend, indicating to us that even her teacher doesn't know her by name. And then later in the movie, uh, Mia is just outside the school building. There's a low wall. She has all her books in hand. She decides that she's going to sit down while all of a sudden there's this other student. He's talking to somebody. He's engrossed in the conversation. He's not paying attention. And he accidentally sits down on her. And then Mia says to Lily, somebody sat on me again, indicating to us that's not the first time that it happened. So throughout the beginning of The Princess Diaries, we really do get the sense that Mia Thermopolis is an excluded person, uh, that she is basically a nobody, uh, that she is just not seen by those around her. And the reason I bring that up is that like Mia, we've all had those moments in our lives. In fact, maybe some of us have had those moments more recently where we have felt excluded, where we have felt like outsiders, where we have felt like nobodies. Um, last week here at Asbury, uh, we started this new message series for Lent and Easter uh, that we're calling Including the Excluded including the excluded. And what we're doing in the seven-part series is we are looking carefully at Jesus' ministry in the third gospel. And what would be the third gospel? The gospel of Luke. And so as a reminder, there are four gospels that we have at the very beginning part of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in their own ways, they communicate the story of Jesus. They tell us the story of Jesus. However, in Luke, more than any other gospel, more than Matthew, more than Mark, more than John, and Luke, we really see Jesus' attention to the outsiders of this world. In fact, I mentioned last time 
that some scholars of the Bible have affectionately referred to Luke as the gospel of nobodies. The gospel of nobodies. Because in Luke, the nobodies of this world, and we're talking about who are these nobodies, but in Luke, the nobodies of this world are lifted up, exalted, and given a place to belong. And so in these messages, and we're going to finish this sermon series on Easter, but in these messages, we're looking at those stories in Luke that show us Jesus' affinity for excluded people. And so to summarize what we talked about last time, because I know maybe some of us weren't here last week, but to summarize what we talked about last time, last time uh, we were in Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2, and we talked about the events surrounding the birth of Jesus, that Jesus' birth didn't involve the somebodies of this world, it's that Jesus' birth involved the nobodies of this world. To begin with, God sent the angel Gabriel from heaven to a village called Nazareth. Nazareth was not a metropolitan city in the ancient world. Nazareth was a podunk. You like that word podunk? It was a podunk, do-nothing town, not a whole lot going on. People were embarrassed by Nazareth. They were ashamed of Nazareth. Yet Nazareth was the place that Almighty God chose to go to carry out His plan of salvation for humanity. And then the person that God chose to play a key role in that plan of salvation was Mary. Mary was a teenage girl from a poor family. Yet out of all the women in the world, Mary was specifically chosen by God Himself to be the earthly mother of God's Son. And then fast forward, Nine months later, in Bethlehem, Jesus is born. Who was there to celebrate the birth of Jesus along with Mary and Joseph? The shepherds. Shepherds weren't high up on the totem pole in the ancient world. They were on the bottom rung of the social ladder. And get this, these shepherds who were there to celebrate the birth of Jesus, they weren't just shepherds in general. They were shepherds working the graveyard shift, the night shift. They were the bottom of the bottom of the bottom, yet they were the ones to witness the appearance of God's salvation in the flesh. And they were also the first evangelists of the New Testament. That word evangelist basically means somebody who tells others about Jesus. They were the first evangelists of the New Testament because Luke reminds us in chapter 2, the shepherds told everyone, they told everyone they could about the Christ child. And so to recap, the events surrounding the birth of Jesus involved the excluded. Folks, what we are going to notice as we continue our journey through the Gospel of Luke, and as Pastor Will mentioned during the announcements, I hope that you are reading Luke as we go throughout the sermon series. It'll enrich um, your reception of these messages uh, just that much more. But what we're going to notice as we move forward is that Jesus' public ministry as an adult, this is up on the screen, Jesus' public ministry as an adult involved the excluded. Now, Jesus began his public ministry, uh, we are told by Luke in chapter 3 of his gospel, uh, after he was baptized by John the Baptist, and then he was tempted by Satan in the desert, he began his public ministry at what age? Do you remember? About 30 years old. Uh, this is what Luke says. This is from Luke chapter 3, verse 23. Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his public ministry. Now, of course, Jesus' public ministry involved a lot of different aspects. There were a lot of things that Jesus did over the course of his public ministry. But we can basically boil down these aspects 
to two components, word and deed. Can you say this with me? Word and deed. First word. Jesus preached, didn't he? He taught. He delivered parables. He interpreted scripture. He had debates with the religious leaders. But then also deed. Not only did Jesus say things, not only did Jesus verbalize things that demonstrated his authority, he did things, didn't he? He healed people. He cast out demons. He performed miracles. And so the story that we're going to look at this morning, uh, this has been a long introduction, but the story that we're going to look at this morning, I'll just name the elephant in the room, uh, is a deed story. And more specifically, it's a healing story. Actually, it's one of the first healing stories that we find in the Gospel of Luke. And folks, if ever there was somebody who was excluded because of his illness, this person whom the Son of God chose to heal was that individual. And so, with that in mind, this is what Luke says in chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. I'm going to read this passage, and then we're going to talk about it together. In one of the villages, Jesus met a man with an advanced case of leprosy. When the man saw Jesus, he bowed with his face to the ground, begging to be healed. Lord, he said, and just listen to the desperation in his voice. Lord, he said, if you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean. Jesus reached out and touched him. I am willing, he said, be healed. And instantly, it didn't happen after a little while, but instantly the leprosy disappeared. Then Jesus instructed him not to tell anyone what had happened. He said, go to the priest and let him examine you. Take along the offering required in the law of Moses for those who have been healed of leprosy. This will be a public testimony that you have been cleansed. But despite Jesus' instructions, the report of his power spread even faster, and vast crowds came to hear him preach and to be healed of their diseases. This is the word of God for us, the people of God, to which we say, thanks be to God. Throughout his public ministry, Jesus healed a heck of a lot of people. Uh, he healed dozens, maybe hundreds of people. It's impossible to estimate how many people Jesus healed. And yet this story from Luke chapter 5, and by the way, this story is also found in Matthew and Mark, but this story in Luke chapter 5 stands out to me as one of the most significant healing stories in all the Bible, mainly because of the disease that was involved. Listen again. Uh, this is from verse 12 of uh, chapter 5 of Luke. Uh, it's up here on the screen. In one of the villages, Jesus met a man with what? An advanced case of leprosy. This is what I love about Luke. He is very detail-oriented. He's very descriptive. Notice, not a word is wasted here. He doesn't say that this guy had a minor case of leprosy. He had a, a small case of leprosy, a mild case of leprosy. He says he had an advanced case of leprosy. Now, it's important for us to recognize that in biblical times, leprosy was kind of a catch-all term for any and every sort of skin disease. Leprosy in biblical times was kind of a catch-all term, an inclusive term for any and every sort of skin disease. People back then didn't have the same medical knowledge that we have today. And the fact that this man, this particular man, had an advanced case of leprosy tells us that whatever skin disease he had, maybe it was leprosy as we understand it today, 
in the 21st century, or maybe some other skin disease. But whatever skin disease he had, it was incredibly serious. And it was not going to go away on its own. And what made skin diseases so dreadful back then, a lot of you already know this, what made them so dreadful back then weren't just the physical effects, but the social effects. For example, in the law of Moses, and Jesus mentions in Luke 5 the law of Moses, well, in the law of Moses, it says that if somebody was suspected to have leprosy, and again, leprosy was a catch-all term for any and every sort of skin disease, this is what that person had to do. That person had to present himself or herself to a priest, a religious leader. The priest would then perform an examination. The priest would have the person remove all their clothes, strip down naked, look the person up and down, and if the priest determined that the leprosy, in other words, the skin disease was serious, this is what that person had to do. This is from Leviticus chapter 13, verses 45 and 46. It's up here on the screen. Uh, those who suffer from a serious skin disease, some translations say leprosy. Those who suffer from a serious skin disease must tear their clothing and leave their hair uncombed. They must cover their mouth and call out, unclean, unclean. As long as the serious disease lasts, they will be ceremonially unclean. They must live in isolation in their place outside the camp. So, going back to Luke 5. This guy who comes to Jesus begging to be healed, at some point, because of the law of Moses and what the law of Moses says, he has had to present himself to a priest. He has had to subject himself to that very degrading examination. Take off all his clothes, be naked, be looked up and down. And the priest essentially said to him, you have leprosy. And until you are healed of this disease, you are to live your life not as a normal human being, but as a leper. You are to tear your clothing. We have to remember, Jewish culture is very visual. What did Jesus do during the Last Supper? He took a loaf of bread. He took uh, a cup of wine, and these things symbolized his sacrifice on the cross. Or think about a Jewish wedding. I've mentioned this before. Some of you have gone to Jewish weddings. The bride and the groom, they stomp on a piece of glass, right? That symbolizes that marriages can be shattered. Marriages could be broken, therefore only intermarriage with a great deal of trepidation and just reverence and respect for marriage. It's a very visual culture. So if you have leprosy, if you have a skin disease, tear your clothing. Mess up your hair. Cover your mouth. And then yell out, unclean. Are you awake now? Unclean. Unclean. I sound like Darth Vader, don't I? Unclean so as to prevent anybody from getting close to you. What would that do to your mental state if that's how you had to live your life? First off, you're dealing with the physical effects, whatever those effects are, but then also these social effects. In some cases, we know what it did. There was one commentary that I read that said that there were some people with leprosy, they just committed suicide. They couldn't take it anymore. Mainly because the disease robbed them of a fundamental need that they had, the same fundamental need that all of us have as human beings, and that would be the need for community, relationships, and belonging. Does anybody here remember Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs? We have it up here on the screen. Maybe when you were in high school or college, you studied this. 
Well, Abraham Maslow was an American psychologist. And actually, let me preface this by saying that um, when I was in high school, I was a dual enrollment student at Broward Community College, which is now Broward College in Fort Lauderdale. And so the first class that I took, the first college class, was an introduction to sociology class. And the professor there was incredible, uh, just a great professor. Some of you have had teachers like that. He really inspired me. And actually, he encouraged me to become a sociology major. So that was one of my majors when I was in college. So I took this class, Introduction to Sociology, and I learned all about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Abraham Maslow was an American psychologist, died back in 1970, and he spent his whole career studying the human psyche. And through his research, Maslow determined that all of us as human beings have needs. We all have needs. However, some of our needs are more pressing than others. Some of our needs are more critical than others. So he developed this hierarchy of needs. The first need Maslow said we all have is physiological. We need food. We need water. We need rest if we're going to survive. And then the second greatest need that we have is safety. We need shelter. We need to be certain that we're living in a secure environment. We're watching what's happening in Ukraine right now. It is how devastating that is. Pastor Will said during the prayer, it's disruptive to the people there. We need safety if we're going to survive. And then the third greatest need that we have is for love and belonging. Uh, we need friendships. We need community. We need relationships with those around us. The fourth greatest need is esteem. Uh, which means a sense of accomplishment. We need to be accomplishing things in our lives to, to give us that sense of purpose. And then finally, the last greatest need at the very top of the list is self-actualization. That's not a word that we use or a term that we use very often. Self-actualization, which basically means, as I understand it, achieving our full potential, doing what we are capable of doing as human beings. Now, folks, suffice it to say, I don't remember everything I learned when I was in school. Nobody remembers everything they learned when they were in school. I will never forget this, what I'm about to share. So I'm sitting in this class, being lectured about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and then the professor, Mr. Housen, he said to us as students, Maslow was wrong. He was dead wrong. He wasn't necessarily wrong about all the things on this list, all these things are important. He was wrong about the order that they go in. And so with that, he took love and belonging, which Maslow lists as number three, and he put it at the very bottom as number one, right alongside food and water and rest as our single greatest need. In other words, without love and belonging, we can't exist we can't survive. We'll die. Now, what's interesting is, this was not at a Christian college. This was at a public university. But what my professor said that day to our class is extremely theological. What did God say in the Bible after God created Adam, the very first human being? Folks, this is from Genesis chapter 2, Verse 18, it is not good for the man to be alone. Now, throughout the creation story, and I've mentioned this in the past, throughout the creation story, there's this refrain that gets repeated again and again. God makes something. And what does God say about the thing that he has just made? It is good. 
It is good. So God makes the plants, and the plants are good. God makes the animals. The animals are good. God makes people. People are good. But then we come to Genesis 2.18, and for the first time in the Bible, we hear the words, not good. This is before the fall, before Genesis 3. But even so, it is not good for the man to be alone. The word here for man, Adam, in the Hebrew, means mankind or humankind. In other words, Adam stands in for all of us as people. It is not good for you to be alone. It is not good for me to be alone. It is not good for any of us to be alone, to live in isolation, to be separated from people. But that's what lepers had to do. I refer again to Leviticus chapter 13, verse 46. As long as the serious disease lasts, they will be ceremonially unclean. They must live in isolation. This is not an option. They have to live in isolation in their place outside the camp. Lepers are not part of the regular community. They can hang out with other lepers. They can't hang out with us. They don't get intimacy and belonging like we do. What did Jesus do? How did the Son of God respond? Luke chapter 5, verse 13. Jesus reached out and what? Touched him. Jesus reached out and touched him. Jesus reached out and touched the man whom probably nobody had touched in a very long time. When I was an associate pastor, uh, one time I went to go visit this woman in a nursing home. She was a member of the congregation, and she was estranged from her kids. The family members that she did talk to, she didn't see them very much. They lived far away, and so she didn't give very many visits. So I went on behalf of the church, and I sat down with her in her nursing, uh, in her room at the nursing home, and uh, we had a conversation. I learned about her story, her life story, and uh, I read the Bible to her. We had prayer. I served her communion. And then as I was getting ready to leave, she said, Pastor Chris, before you go, could you do me a favor? And I said, sure, what is it? Could you hug me? And I said, absolutely. Now, normally, I don't initiate hugs because I'm not sure what the other person's comfort level is. But if somebody wants to hug me, I'm all for it. So I reached down and I wrapped my arms around her body, and she wrapped her arms around my body. That hug must have lasted for about 15 seconds. It lasted for a long time. And then as I pulled away, I noticed that she was crying. And she said, thank you so much. Nobody's hugged me in a long time. Nobody's touched me in a long time. Touch is powerful, isn't it? These past two years where we haven't been able to touch each other as much, we haven't been able to physically connect with each other as much because of COVID. In fact, this is the second anniversary from when we went on lockdown, but it's reminded us just how powerful touch is. Why did you all get excited during the greeting time? Because that's who we are as people. We are social creatures. These past two years have, have reminded us just how powerful touch is because touch is an expression of love and intimacy and belonging, and we need these things to survive. When Hannah and Noah were babies, Amanda and I had this line that we would say to each other at the house. 
It became kind of a mantra. I would ask Amanda, how many hugs and kisses do Hannah and Noah get a day? How many hugs and kisses do Hannah and Noah get a day? And she would always respond the same way. You know what she said? Not enough. Not enough. Because the truth is, folks, we can never hug and kiss our kids enough. Those of you who are parents, those of you who are grandparents, you know that. We can never hug and kiss our kids enough. We can never show them enough physical affection. In fact, scientists have done studies, psychologists have, uh, of children who have grown up in environments where nobody ever held them. You know what happened to them? They had a hard time functioning as adults. This man, in Luke chapter 5, nobody's touched him. Everybody's avoided him. If he came down the road yelling, I'm clean, I'm clean, they would cross to the other side. Get away from me. But Jesus reached out, and he touched him. It's interesting, if we think about it, Jesus didn't have to touch this man in order to heal him. This is Jesus we're talking about. Technically, and this is up on the screen, technically, Jesus could have healed this man from a distance. In other parts of the Gospels, Jesus does that very thing. He heals people from far away. This is Jesus. He's capable of doing anything. This is the incarnation of the God of the universe who spoke things into being. Jesus could have healed this guy from far away. In fact, in Luke chapter 7, just two chapters after this passage, um, there's this Roman officer who comes to Jesus, and the officer says to Jesus, Jesus, I have a servant, and he's sick. If you would just say the word, my servant will be healed. Jesus says the word. The servant is healed. Jesus didn't see him in person when he did that. That's not what happens here. Jesus reached out, and he touched the man whom other people had deemed untouchable, which raises the question for us, and this is the question I want to leave us with, who are the untouchables of our day? Who are the people that Jesus is calling us to go to and to reach and minister to? One of my uh, favorite preachers is this guy named Fred Craddock. I've mentioned him before. Uh, he was uh, a professor um, at Candler School of Theology, uh, which is part of Emory University, in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, he was a pastor in the uh, Disciples of Christ a denomination. Well, Craddock uh, tells a story that one time when he was in Atlanta, Georgia, he heard about this gentleman who was dying of AIDS. This was back in the 1980s when everybody was afraid of AIDS because nobody really understood AIDS back in the 1980s. In fact, back then, AIDS was kind of like leprosy in biblical times. People weren't really sure how AIDS was transmitted, how people got it. And so there was this man in his early 20s, he's dying of AIDS in a hospital in Atlanta. Nobody would go to see him. They were too afraid. This man did not have a church connection, but he had a relative who went to a church. And so the relative went to the pastor and said to the pastor, can you please go visit this man? And so the pastor went reluctantly and wouldn't even open up the door but instead had a nurse crack the door open and then yelled out a prayer and went away. There was another pastor in the area heard about this. So she went inside the hospital room. She took the man's head. She cradled it in her arms and she kissed his forehead. She cried with him. 
She prayed with him. She read the Bible to him. She anointed his head with oil. And then he died that night. She was reflecting on this with some of her friends, and her friends asked her, well, weren't you afraid going to see that guy? Weren't you terrified? And she said, of course I was. I must have washed my hands about 150 times when I left the room. Well, then why on earth did you go? She said, I just kept thinking to myself, what would Jesus do in this situation? I knew the answer. So I knew I had to go. As followers of Jesus, we are called to love as Jesus loves and to go where Jesus goes. And that includes going to the untouchables of our world and offering the ministry, the life-giving ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. So folks, by God's good grace, let's go. Let's go. We've got work to do. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.